This evening, we want to continue where we left off this morning, and with far less review than we made this morning, we'll go right into some further material tonight on the subject of prayer. Say with me our theme verse from the fifth chapter of James. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Amen. That's what it says, and I believe that. And in that verse is all that we want to cover, although we need a few other verses to help fill it out. I want to provide one example this evening from a list of examples that I have here that we haven't covered yet. And this is found in 1 Kings chapter 18. This will be the only review of what we covered last Sunday that we'll make this evening. And looking at 1 Kings 18 in a short prayer that's uttered there, and the results that it achieved in a short hurry. 1 Kings chapter 18. In this chapter, we have Ahab and Jezebel reigning over Israel. And there hasn't been rain for three and a half years. And finally, Elijah has come back and met with Ahab, and he said, get all the prophets of Baal together, and let's show Israel who the true God of Israel is. And so all the people came together for a great test of gods, and it was actually a test of prayer. It was actually a test of prayer to see which God would answer prayer is what took place on Mount Carmel between Elijah and 950 prophets. 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the groves. You can see that in verse 19 of the 18th chapter, and they all ate at Jezebel's table. She subsidized the whole lot of them. You know, they had an IRS deduction for ministers of Baal instead of ministers of the gospel there in 1 Kings 18. Now, they had two altars that they were going to set up, and they put a sacrifice on Baal's altar, and the prophets cried aloud, all day. Now let's look at verse 26 to see prayer issued to the wrong God and prayer made in the wrong way. 1 Kings 18:26. And they took the bullock which was given them and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth, and must be awaked. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancelets till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice, nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. Now there's prayer. I mean, that's fervent prayer. Wouldn't... When was the last time you pulled a knife out and cut yourself while you were praying to show your fervency? This is fervent prayer. Don't be mistaken. But it's to the wrong God. It's not made by righteous men. And it's not effectual because we read that none heard and there was none that regarded. 
Now, that was 950 strong. Now, do you think we need a large church to get the job done in prayer? Do you think you need everyone praying with you across the country and Oral Roberts praying for you as you put your hand on the radio? You don't need that. Let's look at Elijah, a man subject to like passions as we are. Now, James 5 describes his prayer to stop the rain as prayer to start the rain. But look at here. Verse 30, And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. Does that mean anything to anyone here? It better. You notice that? How carefully do you, do you read your Bibles? That's sweet. Amen. For those of you who love the God of this Bible, that is sweet right there. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. I don't know, what's that trench for? And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, Fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, Do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, Do it the third time. And they did it the third time. Verse 35. And the water ran round about the altar and he filled the trench also with water. Now, he's got an altar here of stone with a bullet cut up on top of it, and he's poured 12 barrels of water over the sacrifice, and it's filled the trench round about the altar. Now, the 950 prophets of Baal in the groves have prayed all day long with blood flowing, trying to raise Baal, and there was no water on their sacrifice. If they could just have flipped a bit lighter into the midst of that thing, it might have taken off. but they didn't. Elijah was there watching. Verse 36, And it came to pass the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and prayed this long prayer. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel. Now, he's been called Jacob a few verses earlier. The Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and and Israel. Let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. And then Elijah took the prophets of Baal and dispatched them to their eternal reward. It was an eternal reward, wasn't it? But notice... Is that exceeding abundantly above what you can ask or think? I mean, the best you could have hoped for, naturally speaking, is that somehow the sacrifice would catch on fire. 
but fire coming down from heaven, taking the sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and the water. No wonder the people fell down. Effectual prayer. Two verses long. Two verses long and fire from heaven. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. God may not drop fire from heaven for you, but he can do other things equally as great, like putting fire in the soul of a human being when it's prayed for. Increase my zeal, Lord. I mean, that to me is as great of a fire as ever fell for Elijah. But that's something we need to pray for and work for. Let us not think that he's a different God today or that Elijah had an advantage over us because that's why James 5 was written to teach us that we can do the same thing. Such a short prayer, such dramatic results. One man against 950 and the sacrifice was taken up. But oh my friends, remember, Elijah had spent his time, hadn't he? For three and a half years he'd been out there. He'd been with the Lord. He'd done his wrestling like Jacob did. And when he came time to pray, he received the blessing like Israel did. Jacob and Israel, one and the same. And yet, the great turning point in his life when he wrestled with God and prevailed. And I pray that we can do that. Let's have a short word of prayer before we continue our study this evening. O Lord God, of Abraham and of Isaac and of Israel and of Elijah. We come before Thee, O Lord, knowing that Thou art the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thou art the God of Elijah, and Elijah, who was subject to like passions as we are, has no advantage over us in realizing answers to prayer. But, O Lord, we actually have an advantage over him because we can come to Thee boldly in the name of Jesus Christ, whose merit and obedience and righteousness and sacrifice we know and understand because we're on the other side of the great dividing point in history, and that is the birth, the life, the death, and the life once again of Jesus Christ. And, O Lord, it's in His name that we pray for the benefit of his congregation and his church, in the defense of his word, and for proper prayer in his name that we are assembled together this evening. Bless us to see and to know, to remember and to practice what we learn about prayer tonight. O oh God, have mercy upon us and show these thy people that thou art the same God that didst send fire from heaven to answer the prayer of Elijah 3,000 years ago. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, in whom we trust for all blessings here and of time and for eternal blessings when we are in thy presence. Amen. Amen. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed, and we can pray. I want to go back this, this evening and look at a few, for a few more minutes at what we ended with this morning. We were covering five points of a proper subject for prayer. And by the proper subject, I don't mean what you pray for. That's going to be under a section entitled The Contents of Effectual Prayer. 
The subject of prayer is the person praying. This morning we studied that that person must be righteous. If you are disobedient, God does not hear your prayers. He hears the prayers of righteous men. That's why that sentence states, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now that doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. Elijah wasn't perfect. Uh, you, all you have to do is read chapters 16 through 20 of 1 Kings and you'll find out more about Elijah. He wasn't perfect. But he still was a righteous man in God's respect. Because overall and in general, the purpose of his heart was to obey God as fully as he could. The second point this morning was that we need to pray in the Spirit. We read in the book of Jude, a short little phrase, praying in the Holy Ghost. Now, what does that mean? Well, we covered that this morning, that we need to walk in the Spirit so that when we pray, we have the Spirit of God praying for us. The third thing is that follows worshiping God in Spirit is worshiping God in truth. What follows praying in the Spirit is praying in the truth. We read in Psalm 145, that the Lord is nigh unto all them that call on Him in truth. If you turn your ear away from hearing the law, your prayer will be an abomination. Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 9. Then we looked at the fact that your sins must be confessed. Oh, how important. You know what you'll say? You'll be saying to God that God doesn't answer prayer like He used to, like the Israelites were saying in Isaiah 59 and verse 1, that the Lord's hand is shortened, his ears got heavy. That's what they said. Why was his hand, why did it appear that his hand was short? And why did it appear that his ear was heavy? Because of their iniquities. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. It's that simple. When we looked at King Solomon, we saw a man who loved the Lord God, and who walked in the statutes of David. That's why he received the answer to his prayer for wisdom. But now let's come to that last point that I made this morning, point five, and that is you best guard your relationships with other people. And it includes them all. You know, we dealt with husbands and wives. First Peter 3, 7 tells us that if husbands don't deal with their wives wisely, their prayers will be hindered. There is a plain important statement that your prayers will not get past your ceiling. They're going, to, they're going to be hindered unless you know how to live with your wife in a wise and honorable way according to that text. We then looked at Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus said, If you forgive not men their trespasses, my Father which is in heaven will not forgive you your trespasses. If you forgive, you'll be forgiven. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Look at 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8. I want you to see that little phrase that I referred to this morning. 1 Timothy 2 and 8. How many of you are going to read your Bibles more carefully now with the words Jacob and Israel? Watch it. Watch. Usually it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When it switches... Look, look, look somewhere in the context to see what you can find. That, that was so powerful there in 1 Kings 18. Elijah was at a crucial moment, wasn't he? 
Did he need an answer to prayer? Did he need to prevail? What if nothing would have happened? Well, it was 950 against one. <laughs> the odds were bad. But God came through because he had power with God. 1 Timothy 2.8, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath. Without wrath. When you come to pray, you better make sure you're not praying with wrath in your character or in your practice. Because if you have wrath there, it's going to stunt your praying. First of all, wrath is sin. Ungodly wrath is what I'm talking about. Ungodly wrath is sin. Don't have wrath against those that have offended you. Don't have wrath against your wife. You know, it tells us in Colossians chapter 3, husbands, be not bitter against your wives. You behave that way, your prayers aren't going to be answered. Because there's a God in heaven that can be bitter too when he chooses to be toward those who want to be bitter toward their wives. We looked at Matthew 7 too, with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. What kind of a yardstick do you use with other people? Do you demand perfection from everyone, and if they fail, you go attack them, you resent them, you hate them, you want to correct them when they make little failures? And think about everyone that you relate to in this world, church members. When someone in the church does something against you, how do you measure their behavior? By your yardstick, or do you overlook some things that they do? And you pass over transgressions, and you show mercy. Remember, James chapter 2 and verse 13 tells us that mercy rejoices against judgment. And he that has shown no mercy shall be judged without mercy. What about the men you work with? Or maybe that work for you? Or your bosses? You never show any mercy when they make a mistake. They make a mistake and you want to go correct them. They make a mistake and you want to resent them for it. They make a mistake and you want to criticize them to others. It's easy to be very judgmental that way, isn't it, on little things. If you're very critical of little things, let me remind you that God will be very critical of little things in your life. And like I said this morning, this point frightens me, and yet it encourages me. There is all the motive in the world to be a big sugar daddy. You know me, I couldn't be that if I tried. But we ought to aim for that. Shouldn't we? The more merciful we can become within scriptural guidelines, and I'm talking about personal offenses. I am not talking about offenses against God. If a member of this church commits adultery, they're not going to get the least smidgen of mercy. They're going to be excluded. There is no mercy when you've committed a gross public crime like that. You must suffer for it the way 1 Corinthians 5 prescribes. However, Though we don't deal with sins like that very often. What we deal with are the big ones, you know. Someone doesn't say good morning to us when we come into the church. The neighbor's dog barked in the night when they had some guests come to their door. Someone at work didn't put our name, carbon copy, and give us a copy of a memo. And I could go on all evening, little things like that, and we get upset. 
let me remind you that if you do that, God is going to be looking for those issues in your life. What this ought to do is encourage all of us to see how merciful we can become and how pitiful we can be, especially with our children. Do you want the Lord to pity you? If he looked at your relationship to your children and behaved accordingly, how much pity would you receive? Does that get home? I hope it does. That, that's sobering. That's very sobering. I, I want the Lord to pity me. Therefore, that's going to encourage me to pity my children. Let me show you a couple of other verses. Look at Psalm 18. Psalm 18, on this subject of you will be treated by God in the same way and to the same degree you treat others. Psalm 18, verses 25 and 26. With the merciful thou wilt show thyself merciful. You want God's mercy in prayer? What do you need to do? Be merciful. With an upright man thou wilt show thyself upright. With the pure thou wilt show thyself pure. And with the froward thou wilt show thyself froward. You show me someone who's froward with other people. They abuse other people. They may not even know all of that they, all that they do. They're just rude in the way they treat other people. They're insensitive to other people's name, to other people. They're critical of other people. They're sarcastic with other people. They expect too much out of other people. They let other people know it when they're unhappy. You've met people like that. They're forward men. Guess how God will behave toward them? The same way. He will be insensitive. He will be rude. He will ignore them. And He will criticize them and leave them convicted under their sins and not be merciful toward them. May that warning encourage you to be merciful. Look at Psalm 41. Psalm 41. <clears throat> Let's begin reading at verse 2. The Lord will preserve him. Let's just think about this man and see if it doesn't sound like something you like. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he shall be blessed upon the earth and thou wilt not deliver him unto the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him upon the bed of languishing. Thou wilt make all his bed in his sickness. What kind of a man is that? Look at verse 1. Blessed is he that considereth the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. And all the other blessings of verses 2 and 3 are conditioned upon considering the poor. Blessed is he that considereth the poor. Let me remind you that there is more than just poverty in riches or economic poverty. There is intellectual poverty. There is poverty of maturity. There is poverty of family upbringing. Some in the congregation have been brought up different ways than other members. Those that have been brought up in a superior way find it easy to look down on those who were not brought up 
with those benefits. There's someone in poverty. There's someone poor. Do you consider the fact that they did have different circumstances than you, and are you merciful? You know, our children can learn to be merciful with each other. You know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a great lack of mercy among young people growing up with each other, always criticizing, always picking on one another. If they would be merciful with one another, as they grow up, God will be merciful with them. If they're froward, froward means perverse, obnoxious, rude, insensitive to others, then God will be just that way to you. I hope that you're merciful towards your brothers and sisters. I hope you're merciful to your friends. I hope that you'll consider all those that are poor in any sense of that word. If you'll do that, look at verses 2 and 3. Isn't that exciting? The Lord will preserve him, and he goes on to describe what that means. Keeping you alive. You want to be kept alive, or do you want to die? When you're on your bed of languishing, do you want God to come to your rescue and pull you off that bed and set you up on high and cause you to rejoice? Consider the poor. This subject right here, I don't want to leave it. Because this is where the rubber meets the road for all of us. I mean, you know, this morning I preach on being righteous. Kind of vague, isn't it? I mean, I don't have... We, can, we escape many times by saying that's too vague for me. I say, walk in the Spirit. Oh, that's too vague. I, I know. We, I say, walk in the truth. That's too vague. I say, confess your sins, and you say, I do. Well, let's get real practical. God will be as merciful to you, and your prayers will receive as gracious of answers as you show grace and mercy to others. Let that sink in to your souls. What do you think about others? See, God knows your thoughts. What do you say about others behind your closed doors? What, how do you talk about others? No one in this congregation is ever going to be this, the way you are. Never. It doesn't matter how many times I preach a week and how many years we spend together. We are never going to be the same. Same in the mind of the Lord, I pray. Same in day-to-day -day practice. How in the world when we have so many different backgrounds, intellectual abilities, physical abilities, physical characteristics, etc., etc., etc. Are you merciful? And like I said this morning, do you rejoice in someone offending you? Isn't that what James 2.13 teaches? Do you rejoice when someone offends you. Mercy rejoices against judgment. And my other verse that I gave you this morning was Proverbs 19.11. It is the glory of a man to pass over a transgression. It ought to be your glory to, to realize that person just offended me. I can feel my flesh rising up in me. I'd like to go choke the life out of him. I'd like to go correct him. And you say, wait a minute. The glory of a man is to pass over a transgression and with the measure that I measure, it's going to be measured to me again. Forget about that. I can glory in that. I can rejoice. Let him, that's okay. It was just me. I'm not important. And when you behave that way, and I've preached on this subject a, a number of times over the last year or two, 
When you behave that way, God behaves that way toward you with those little areas in your life where you offend him. And when you beg God for forgiveness for sins and would he restore the joy of his salvation to you, you get it in a rush. Or you can pray for forgiveness and you can languish in those sins for a month. And it will be that way if you're not merciful. There are two personality types. and we, Hair lip Crosby. That's on tape. God helping me. You people being merciful. Oh, yes. You people being merciful toward me. I will preach on the temperaments of men. Melancholies and cholerics, for those of you who need the direct rebuke, are the ones that suffer most with what I'm talking about right now. Sanguines and phlegmatics. Bob Hagler is a sanguine. Jeff Ole is a phlegmatic. The cholerics like Terry Kruger and the melancholies like William Johnson and myself are the ones that are critical. And for those of you who know what I'm talking about, I'm saying this to save some time and get right to who I want to get to. Your problem is being too critical and too judgmental for personal offenses. People do the least things and you want to jump on them and chop their heads off either verbally, physically, or in your mind. You can't forget it. I can't forget it. Okay, I can get, I can't forget it. Because you're measuring everyone by a perfectionist yardstick. And guess where that yardstick's going to be seen again? When you hit your knees and you look up and pray to God, all you're going to see is this great big yardstick that you created. Let it warn all of us, especially those that I just addressed. And God helping me, I'm going to get all of you when I preach on that and tell you who I'm referring to. You must be careful with our children, with our wives, and with everyone. We set standards that they can't always meet. No one will ever meet our standards all the time. And remember that when you go to pray. Some of you don't have the peace and the answer to prayer that you could otherwise have because you're too critical. It's that simple. I've given you ten verses now on the subject, and we need to move on. This evening, I want to deal with the attitude of effectual prayer. We've covered the subject, what you need to be. You need to be obedient. You need to be in the Spirit. You need to be in the truth. You need to have your sins confessed. And you need to have good relationships with other people. Now, what is the attitude you want to have when you come to the Lord in prayer? Turn to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. And brethren, outside of the fact of the subject of prayer, by the subject of prayer, I mean being, praying in the Spirit and being obedient. I consider this to be of great importance. I personally know this to be of great importance, and the emphasis in the Word of God on this point shows me its importance. Psalm 37 and verse 4. Delight thyself also in the Lord and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Amen. If you want to pray 
and receive the desires of your heart, I am giving you right now one of the most important ingredients, and that is to delight in the Lord, not in Bible doctrine. We've done that, haven't we? Not in the church. Have you ever met those who delighted in the church? Not in what God's given you. That's getting too humanistic. Not in the truth, but in God himself. Now, this requires a whole sermon, which I cannot give and I've given before. The Lord willing, when I preach in Detroit next Sunday, this will be my text. And I'm going to try to give them in one sermon what you've received in 400 sermons over the last three years. If God will somehow help me to do it. I want to condense the driving theme of my ministry. And that is delight in the Lord. Because I've seen what it can do in this congregation, and I, I love this congregation here and the joy that most of you have in the Lord, not in Bible doctrine. I'm so tired of people who joy in Bible doctrine are the most boring people you'll ever meet. It's the sure route to death for a church. God, listen, the God of this universe isn't doctrine. The God of this universe is a being who is extremely jealous, with a capital J, and he wants all the glory. He says in Isaiah 42, I believe it is, and I will not give my glory to another. He wants it all. He wants a personal relationship where we get excited and enthused and we rejoice and we are glad in Him. And I was telling a couple of brothers this evening before the church service, I was in this town 10 years ago, sitting in an institution that doesn't preach the God of this Bible, and I'd sit there in their dormitory, and with one other student I found, we would just share passages of Scripture from the Word of God describing that being. And I, like, I used these words with the brethren. I, we got high on those passages of Scripture. I'd sit there with my eyes closed, and he'd read me one. And oh, we would just think on those words, ascribing praise and greatness to our God. Then I'd read him one. And then he'd read me one. And I went through this metamorphosis, this changing process, through God's Word by seeing a vision of the God of heaven. Because it's all there. It's all in these pages. And this verse means more to me than I can ever tell you. Delight thyself also in the Lord, not in anything else but the Lord. And he shall give thee the desires of thine heart, and I have them. I have them, and I'm only 30 years old. But now I'm trusting that he knows some things I haven't desired. Exceeding abundantly above what I can ask or think. I, I believe that. I believe I'm the most blessed man on the face of this earth. I believe that with all of my heart. But I'll tell you one thing, and I'll boast in this. 
No one has ever delighted themselves in the Lord more than I have. Call my hand. Compete with me. I'd love it. That is the theme for my ministry, and that's why I am in the ministry. Delight thyself also in the Lord. And I have seen in this congregation the effect, what I believe is the effect of that underlying theme for our relationship together and our worship of God. And it is rare. It is very rare. Delight thyself also in the Lord. My mind is so filled with what I want to preach in a week from now on that verse that I, I need to be careful, but I, would, I just want to remind you what it means to delight. Proverbs chapter 5 tells us that you, we delight in wives. Proverbs tells us we delight in sons who are wise. The, the rich delight in their riches. Other words that are used are the verb glory. I have a whole section I want to give on that verb glory. The rich glory in their riches. Jeremiah 9.23 describes three type of men. There are the intellectual type, there are the physical type, and there are the financial type. You will not find any men, except exceptions, outside those three categories. Men either delight in mental accomplishments, education, learning, or the delight in physical accomplishments, athletics, health, or the delight in financial accomplishments, financial power, riches, income, net worth. And you know those men, and we live in a society where you can see those three types of men everywhere you look, can't you? From the seminary professor who worships at the altar of education to our professional athletes that we pay more than any other segment of society to those financial wizards that we pay tremendous sums of money and who are the most arrogant that you'll ever meet. They all glory in their respective accomplishments, don't they? And does that help you understand the word glory? Remember Muhammad Ali? Did he know how to glory? Did he know how to glory? Oh, yes, he did. Muhammad Ali knew how to glory in his physical accomplishments. And there's others. I mean, do I need to go into examples of men who gloried in their financial accomplishments and men who glory in their intellectual accomplishments? Let us not glory in those three things, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he knoweth and understandeth me, that I execute loving kindness and justice and judgment in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. That's why he can, Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 1 and 31 that no flesh should glory in his presence. God wants no flesh to glory in his presence, but to glory in himself. But let him that glorieth glory in me. Let him glory in the Lord is where God wants all the glorying to be done. If you will do that, you are fulfilling your role as a human being in this universe to a fuller extent than any other way. And as you do that, God will favor you. It's that simple. We had it there in Psalm 37.4. 
What did God create you for? His pleasure. How do you give him pleasure? By glorying in him. Listen, do athletes love it when we glory in them? When they can fill a stadium with a hundred thousand screaming maniacs? They love it. Do the intellectuals love it when they can be given an audience to show off their, their learning and education? Do the rich love to write books on how to be a millionaire? Yes, they do. They all love that glorying. And God loves that glorying also. Do you give it to him? If I put any of you in a good football game with a team that you enjoyed watching, you'd be jumping and stomping and clenching your fists and screaming and exhilarated if they were winning. Well, believe me, I'm presenting to God to you and I have for three years, and he hasn't lost a game yet. He hasn't tied yet either. And I don't care who disagrees with me, he's never had a close game. I hate close games because I read in Proverbs 30 that a close game is not beautiful. In Proverbs 30, Solomon describes four beautiful things. The lion, which is the king of beasts and turns aside for none. The greyhound, known for its great speed, its beauty and speed. The goat, its beautiful in its agility. And fourth, a king against whom there is no rising up. Now, is that, a, is that beautiful? A king who can dominate his enemies. I have preached that king to you for three years. Do you delight in that king and consider him an object of beauty? We hang pictures of lions on our walls. We respect speed. Instead of greyhounds, we have Corvettes. We respect agility. Instead of a goat, it's Michael Jordan of the Chicago Bulls. How often do we sit down and remind ourselves of the king in whom there, against whom there is no rising up? Delight yourself in God, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Look at Psalm 34. We're at Psalm 34. Look at verse, we're at Psalm 37. Go to Psalm 34 and look at verse 2. Psalm 34 and verse 2. Does this characterize you? My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Have we done that with each other over the last year? We love boasting in the Lord. And we hear each other and what does it do? It makes us glad. I got a postcard this week. I love getting a postcard. What does it have on it? A Bible verse. Exodus chapter 15, I believe it was. Who is like unto our God among the gods? And then it used Psalm 44 and verse 8. Psalm 44 and verse 8. In God we boast once a year when we preach on the glory of God. Psalm 44 and verse 8. In God we boast all the day long and praise thy name forever. Brethren, if you will learn to love the God we serve and remember his works, I don't have time to go into it all. Remember meditating? Remember musing? Remember considering? Remember remembering his works? He wants us to do that. If you'll delight in him, 
Rejoice in Him. You know I could raise a hundred verses and rejoice. Glory in Him. Fifty verses. Be glad. Fifty more. If we would do that, He will give us the desires of our heart because that is the greatest fulfillment of His pleasure we can do actively here in this world. To glory in Him, I assume you're all obeying because we covered that this morning, right? We're moving on to the next level of spirituality. And that is delighting in God. Listen, devils can obey when he tells them to, but devils don't glory and get excited and boast about God's judgment on the fallen angels, do they? <laughs> Are you listening? Look at Psalm 145. Psalm 145. I wish I could communicate this point I'm trying. Psalm 145, verses 19 and 20. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked will he destroy. You love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And as it show, do you boast of that love? Do you boast of the glory of that God? Do you glory? in that God, like men write books about their rich riches. Do you do that? The Lord will hear your cry. Isaiah 58 and verse 14. Isaiah 58 and verse 14, talking about doing what God has commanded. In this particular case, making the Sabbath day a delight. Saying, I'm, the, the Sabbath day is going to be my pleasure to do just what God wants me to do thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. If you want to ride in the high places of the earth, delight yourself in the Lord. Get excited about God himself. Psalm 92. I believe this point is extremely important for effectual prayer. All you have to when we get through with all the prayers that we're going to cover, you will know what I mean because it just drips from their prayers. They loved the God they worshipped and they gloried in Him and they boasted in Him, continually ascribing greatness to our God. You're going to see it and then you'll realize, see, I've already been through this series with myself and with the Lord and I'm back now and I'm telling you right now, you will see that this, port, this point right here is extremely important. Verse 4 of Psalm 92, For thou, Lord, hast made me glad through thy work. I will triumph in the works of thy hands. There's that triumphant behavior. O Lord, how great are thy works, and thy thoughts are very deep. A brutish man knoweth not, neither doth a fool understand this. When the wicked spring as the grass, and when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. But thou, Lord, art most high forevermore. And he goes on to describe the praise of God over and over. Don't we do it every Sunday morning when we read a psalm? We see the psalmist continually praising God. Look at Job 22. Job chapter 22. Job chapter 22 and verse 21. 
Acquaint now thyself with him, and be at peace. Thereby good shall come unto thee. You want good? I'll tell you how. Acquaint thyself with him. How acquainted are you with God? You know him? You know how holy he is? How powerful he is? How terrible he is? How great his judgments are? How merciful he can be? Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. That's part of another sermon. There's so many blessings that come through knowing God. Talk about peace. There, there is no source for peace but knowing God. When you know God, the way the Bible describes him, it is all peace to trust in that being. If you'll come back to Psalm 63, I'll read a couple more and we'll move on to another point. Three more. Psalm 63, how many is a couple? Usually two. Psalm 63 in verse 11. David speaking, but the king, who's the king? David himself. But the king shall rejoice in God. There's that delighting. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory. But the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. Who swears by God? God's people. Other men swear by other things. You know, they swear by gold. They swear by men. They swear by lands. They swear by their temples. They swear by their gods. But who swears by the true God? God's saints do. And what, do those, what characterizes those saints? They shall glory while the king rejoices. And David filled his psalms with examples of rejoicing. Look at the next psalm in verse 10. Psalm 64 and 10. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and shall trust in him. And all the upright in heart shall glory. And that's a verb. And I'm not talking about giving glory to God specifically. I'm talking about glorying yourself. Boasting. Speaking of it to others. Getting excited. Clapping your hands. They did in the Bible. For what God did. For God himself. Del glory, verb. Psalm 64 and verse 10. One last reference, Job 34. Job 34. When I say Job 34, who's the writer here? Elihu. Job 34 and verse 9. You want to see a description about a wicked and foolish scorner? Job. Here's what Elihu says of a wicked and foolish scorner. For he hath said, It profiteth a man nothing that he should delight himself with God. See, Job had delighted himself with God because things hadn't turned out his way for a short period of time. He was now saying there was no profit in delighting himself with God. And Elihu is saying, that he's a foolish and wicked scorner. If you'll read the first eight verses, you'll see that. But it is a foolish and a wicked man. It's a scorner who says it doesn't profit to delight yourself in God. I'm telling you, it will profit. And I recommend that as one of the most important aspects of the proper attitude for prayer. Let's look at the fact that prayer must be fervent. You must delight in the Lord. Now let's see that prayer must be fervent. We know that from James 5.16, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man 
avails much. What does the word fervent mean? Let's let the Bible define words. Look at Second, Second Peter 3.10. Don't even turn there. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to return one day with fervent heat, melting all the elements of the universe as we know them. It describes heat, very high temperature, intense heat. Fervent means hot, glowing, burning, zeal in prayer. If you look at Luke chapter 22, we can see an example of such a prayer. Luke chapter 22, hot. What was the problem with the church at Laodicea? They had lost that edge. They weren't fervent. Their prayers weren't effectual. What had happened to the church at Ephesus? They had lost that edge, lost their first love. Luke 22 and verse 44, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. And we read, And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus Christ prayed more earnestly. Earnest is one of the synonyms used to define the word fervent. Is your earnestness with God hot or lukewarm or cold? When you're praying, how earnest are you with God? Jesus Christ was so earnest, he was in an agony over his requests, and he sweat, his sweat dropping to the ground were as drops of blood as he went through the greatest grief and prayed most earnestly, begging with God, wrestling with God to the utmost degree. Do you pray and wrestle with God in that direction? You'll never get there, but do you pray in that direction as far as fervency? You know, we read about Hannah. She was there at the, at the tabernacle in Shiloh in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and it said she wept sore. Hezekiah, when the Lord said he was going to die, he turned his back on Isaiah and he wept sore. This was a great big king bawling like a baby and doing it in great bitterness of soul, like Hannah and Hezekiah, a woman and a man as our examples for fervent prayer. You will find the Lord when you seek him, if you seek him with all your heart. Jeremiah 29, 12, and 13. Let's move on. We ought to have a bold attitude when we pray. Your attitude in prayer should be a delight in God. It should be fervent or great earnestness as you pray and seriousness about what you're doing. And you should be bold. If Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16 is a verse that you all know well regarding boldness in prayer. Hebrews 4 and verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is an instruction for prayer. Come boldly. Don't come timidly. The men in Scripture did not come timidly. They came boldly. They knew that God had promised them things. That doesn't mean they didn't come humbly. But there's a, 
will match and meet and reconcile coming humbly and boldly. Humbly is when you lo are looking at yourself. Boldly is when you're looking at God. And it's the different perspective. When you're talking about yourself in prayer, you better be humble. When you're talking about God in prayer, you better be bold. You better mention His promises and be bold. Look at Hebrews 10 on this particular point. I preached to you on Hebrews 10 a couple of months ago when we had a couple baptized one Sunday morning. And remember that the first 18 verses of Hebrews 10 describe the fact that Jesus Christ has put away our sins completely. He can't even remember them. Past sins, present sins, future sins, he can't remember them. But there ought to be a conclusion or an effect of that in our lives. And it's in verse 19. Having, therefore, as a result of God not knowing about your sins, having, therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And their prayer came up into his holy dwelling place. How do you get that prayer into the holiest, into the holy dwelling place of God, holy dwelling place of God? Boldness, with boldness. If you come with intimidation, if you come with doubting, what does it say about your understanding and confidence in the blood of Jesus Christ? You are equal to Jesus Christ. Doesn't the Bible tell you that over and over and over again? We are the sons of God. We ought to pray as the Son of God. We're joint heirs with Christ. He doesn't remember our sins. Remind Him of that. And come boldly in Christ's name. Let me show you the advantage we have under the New Testament by using Christ's name for greater boldness. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. You've already seen it in two passages, but let me give you another one. Hebrews 8, 6, here's the benefit of those under the new covenant. But now hath he obtained, that is Jesus Christ, a more excellent ministry. Did Moses have a pretty powerful ministry? Pretty glorious? 2 Corinthians 3 says it wasn't very glorious. It says we've got something a whole lot more glorious. Did Elijah have a pretty good ministry? Did Aaron have a pretty good ministry? Jesus Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry. Hebrews 8, 6, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. In the New Testament, we have a more excellent ministry through Christ, we have a better covenant, and we have better promises than they had. Now, that's what the Bible says. If anyone can come boldly to God, we ought to be able to. You say, give me an example of someone who was bold. Let's go to the Old Testament, remembering you better be bolder than this man. Genesis 18. Genesis 18. Genesis chapter 18. Three men appear at Abraham's tent. They are the Lord in a human appearance. And they went toward Sodom in verse 22. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Verse 23. Now watch Abraham's boldness. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Now that's quite a question to ask God, isn't it? Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? 
You can pray that prayer relative to AIDS if AIDS scares you. Wilt thou destroy the righteous with the wicked? You can pray that prayer relative to the destruction of this the self-destruction of this nation. You better be bolder, though. Don't try to match Abraham. You better exceed him because you've got a better covenant than he had, and you've got better promises than he had, and he didn't know what your five-year-old children know about Jesus Christ. Genesis 18, verse 24. Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? He starts out with fifty with the Lord. Now be bold. This is going to be hard to imagine if you were in the presence of God praying this way. For those of you who know the incident here, he says, if there's 50 righteous men in Sodom, will you spare the city? He, he tries to give the Lord a reason in verse 25. That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Listen to him reason with God. Verse 26, And the Lord said, here's his answer, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. See, he's acknowledging his boldness. I've been bold, and I'm, I'm just dust and ashes. Peradventure there shall lack five of the fifty righteous. Wilt thou destroy all the city for lack of five? And, he, and God said, If I find there forty and five, I will not destroy it. And he spake unto him yet again and said, Peradventure there shall be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for forty's sake. And he said unto him, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure there shall thirty be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure there shall be twenty found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for twenty's sake. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. Peradventure ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham, and Abraham returned unto his place. Is that boldness? God knew that Abraham, Abraham knew that God was going to destroy Sodom, and he begins to reason with him. Oh, that's, a section, that's a whole sermon, but it's coming on reasoning with God. But here's one example of it, reasoning with boldness. Starts with 50 and comes all the way down to 10, dickering with the Lord like some of you would haggle at a garage sale. And he gets him down to 10, and the Lord says for 10. Well, now the Lord knew there weren't 10 there. <laughs> that was the problem. Now see, Abraham, Abraham prayed for the desire of his heart, and the Lord met the desire of his heart. He was praying for a certain family over there. And if you were to read Genesis chapter 19, you would find out that God, in special consideration of Abraham's prayer, destroyed the city, but pulled Lot and his wife and daughters, as many as would, would come, out of that city because of that prayer. You can read it in Genesis 19. But notice the boldness in praying. Do you remember Exodus 33 that I read to you, I believe, a week ago, where Moses reasoned with God, saying, If I've found favor in your sight, show me thy way. Prove it. 
prove it. There's boldness, isn't it? Show me thy way. And the Lord said, no man, you know, no man can see me. Show me thy way if I've found favor in your sight. And so the Lord finally says, I'll show you my backside. There's boldness. Don't you ever come to God fearing that he doesn't want to do great things for you. Don't come to God fearing that he can only see all your sins. You are his son. And if you go there thinking about your sins, obviously there's a time for confession. But then there's a time to come into the holiest with boldness based on what Christ has done in putting away sins. A righteous man is also going to be persistent in prayer. Delight yourself in the Lord. Pray fervently. Pray boldly. And most of all, pray persistently. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 17 says, Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Now, does that mean that we're to be praying 24 hours a day? You cannot pray 24 hours a day. It is humanly impossible to pray 24 hours a day. It is impossible to be in a prayerful attitude, as some would say, 24 hours a day. What is a prayerful attitude when you're in a deep sleep dreaming about some foaming dog chasing you over a cliff? Aren't those terrible? You wake up shaking and sweating and your legs are sore because you've been running so far. Terrible. I want to show you what it means to pray without ceasing. And it's, it's rather simple to see if we look at the Word of God instead of dreaming about walking around praying 24 hours a day. Luke chapter 16. Jesus didn't pray all the time. And Jesus would set aside specific times and he'd go pray. Luke chapter 16. I don't want Luke 16. I want Luke 18. Secretary made a typographical error. Luke 18, verse 1. And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. This is the explanation for pray without ceasing. This is the explanation right here, what that means. Saying, There was in a city a judge, which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. He will. The unjust judge finally answered the woman's petition for some legal action because she came continually. How do you come continually? Now, it doesn't say that you're there continually. It says that you come continually, and there's a big difference between those two. That means you don't give up after the first two, three, five, or ten efforts in prayer. You stick with it. And this, this is, from a different standpoint, one of the most important aspects of the attitude of prayer. S the stick to that you need 
to pray effectually. Because God is going to bear long, he said, sometimes to see if you will continue to pray and not to faint. Don't some of us faint sometimes when we're praying? We faint. We give up. We pr- you. If I was to ask you, or if God was to show us, by every member in this congregation, the average number of prayers before you fainted and gave up for a prayer request, what would the number be? Wouldn't that be an interesting statistic? I love statistics. You, you all know that. Wouldn't it be great if I had a list, or if we all had a list that ranked us from top to bottom? On average, how many times does that person pray before they give up and forget about that request? Pray persistently. Here is the example of what it means to pray without ceasing. It means don't stop until you get your request. Or God has changed circumstances so it's obvious His will wasn't what your request was. Look at Luke 11. Luke chapter 11. In the first four verses of Luke chapter 11, we have the Lord's Prayer. But he goes on to explain prayer further in verse 5. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, Though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Persistence in prayer is given through this short little parable. You might have a friend, and this sounds like pretty pitiful friends, who are in bed with their children at midnight, and you come and say, I need a loaf. Now, he won't get up because you're his friend. That isn't enough motivation for him to get out of that warm bed and hit the cold floor. But because of your importunity, your need and your persistence because you don't have anywhere where else to go. He will get up and give you as much as you need. And Christ gave that illustration for us to pray that way. Because he goes on to say in verse 9, And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. The point is, if you want to get a lesson from this, not just being God's sons get us the answer which is the friend analogy here. But it's the importunity. It's the lack of what we need and the persistence and dependence and desire we express for that thing. Just saying I'm a friend wouldn't have got him out of bed. But the fact that he had a need got him out of bed. And if we pray that way to the Lord with that kind of persistence in showing him our need, he will hear. Remember Jacob? He didn't let go all night. The Lord said, let me go. I will not until you bless me. Do you pray with that kind of persistence? 
Look at Hosea 12. I want you to see a, a minor prophet comment on that prayer. Hosea chapter 12. That particular prayer was a very important event in the history of the nation of Israel. Hosea 12, 3 and 4. This is speaking of Jacob. He took his brother by the heel in the womb. That's what Jacob did to Esau. And by his strength he had power with God. Now what strength? The strength of persistence in not letting him go over time. It doesn't say he pinned the angel. It said he wouldn't let him go. He was persistent. Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spake with us. And it goes on describing Jacob, who became Israel. But he prevailed through his strength, and that strength was the persistence. You know, strength can be measured a couple of ways. Strength can be measured in how many pounds you can press. Strength can be measured in how far you can run. One's a function of time, and one's a, one isn't. And when we talk about strength in prayer, so that you don't faint, it's not a weight. It's time. We're talking about a function of time. How long can you last? How long will you beseech the Lord and wrestle with Him and tell Him, I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to be like that widow woman who would not let the unjust judge go. But by her continual coming, bothered Him and troubled Him until He answered her request. And the Lord will do the same for us when we pray in that spirit. Look at Matthew 15. I want you to see the persistence of a woman who came to Jesus. Matthew chapter 15. Now we use some of these illustrations for different points at different times, but the points are there nonetheless. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, this is a prayer, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. This woman has a child, demon-possessed, and she's begging Jesus Christ for mercy on her child. Now that is a simple prayer in earnestness, and the woman is serious. She's come to see Jesus. It is a serious problem, and she's praying for it. Verse 23, But he answered her not a word, period. Will you please, please let those words sink into your memory also relative to prayer? You are going to pray sometimes, and God will not answer a word. What are you going to do? Quit? Faint? Are you going to be right back there the next morning, the next noon, the next evening, whenever, begging him again? Well, what did this woman do? But he answered her not a word. Verse 23. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. Now, can you imagine the scene? This woman has come to Jesus. She, he, she knows that he can heal her daughter. She said, Lord, have mercy on me. My daughter's grievously vexed. Healer. He didn't say a word. So what'd she do? She started making a clamoring for Christ, calling on him until she upset the disciples who said, send her away. She's bothering us. She kept right on crying 
for Jesus Christ to have mercy on her. And I'm telling you, if you're crying for mercy, God will never kick you away in the end. He may not answer a word for a while, but he sees that crying, and he will not kick someone begging for mercy. Like I've said before, no one will ever tumble into hell begging for the mercy of God. You have no evidence of that in the Word of God anywhere. You show me someone that begs for God's mercy and is humble enough to realize that without him giving mercy, they don't stand a chance, and I'll show you someone that will obtain all the mercy they need. Verse 24, so Christ takes up stage two. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Verse 25, then came she, she's not going to give up yet. You know, he, he, she knows she's not of Israel, and he's just acknowledged that, and he says, I'm not sent to you. I'm sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Would you have quit yet? Would you have quit yet? I mean, it's rough. Christ's disciples are telling you to uh, get lost, okay? Now, flake off, babe. Right? It's bad. He didn't say anything. Then he said, I'm only sent to Israel. And then he said, it just wouldn't be fit to do anything for you dog and the disciples are saying get out of here and she's been clamoring now I'm being a little funny here with the illustration but friends if you were there would it be any less funny this is incredible but where would you give up when he didn't say anything when the disciples said well you might as well quit praying for that and try to discourage you and others may do that sometimes or how about when he said, I'm only sent to Israel? Or how about when he called her a dog and said it wouldn't be fit to do anything for her? And then she, she reasoned. She reasoned, didn't she? Oh, yeah. Verse 27, reasoning in prayer is fantastic. It's, I'm looking forward to that. And she said, truth, Lord, true, it wouldn't be meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. To do, to do that with all the bread, you'd give it to the children. Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table, and if you would give me just a crumb, it'd be enough for my daughter. My. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous woman of Tyre availeth much. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. You're going to forget these examples. I hope you don't. Remember this. Do you persist in prayer like that? What was her faith? Persistence against resistance. Persistence against resistance. You're going to meet with it. Great is thy faith. You know why God does it? That is the only way to give you great faith, is to do that from time to time to see if you'll continue. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2, and you need not turn there, Paul said these words, continue in prayer. Look at Ephesians 6 and verse 18, another epistle where Paul dealt with prayer. He put it this way, 
Ephesians 6 and verse 18, this is describing the army and the armor that a Christian is to take. Verse 17, he takes the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. You persevere if you want to get a prayer answered. Think about that woman for a minute. She had a problem. Wouldn't, what if you had a demon-possessed child? <laughs> Some of you may. My parents did. And it wasn't my brother. And I've only got one. And it wasn't my sister. And I've only got one. What are you going to do? Are you going to pray and because you don't see a change at the end of the first week, give up? You, I know your tendencies. I know my tendencies. Are we going to continue and persevere in prayer? No answer. Others try to discourage us. Don't you let anything discourage you from your goal of begging for a crumb from God. And a crumb is more than you'll ever need. A crumb is enough to do exceeding abundantly above all that you can ask or think. Can you imagine that woman probably wondering if it'd be a two-year withdrawal period? Before she could get home, somebody was probably coming to get her and saying, you don't even need to worry anymore. It's already taken care of. Because from that very hour, her daughter was healed. I hope you'll pray that way. One last verse is Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. What, what some people will do when they hear me stress the importance of persistence, and you all can see that, I believe, persisting in prayer is that you'll become mechanical. You'll become mechanical. The easy thing to do is to make yourself a little list, have it beside your bed, you know, do it three times a day like David and Daniel. I encourage that. We'll get to that. And then you just pray mechanically. That isn't going to get the job done. It's the effectual, fervent prayer, remember? You've got to put all these things together. It's not overwhelming. We can do it, and you know you can do it. But it takes work. It will not come naturally. Romans 12 and verse 12 puts it this way. I want the last clause of that verse. Continuing instant in prayer. What does the word instant mean? You know, ministers we read in 1 Timothy chapter 4, I believe, are to be instant in season and out of season. What does that mean? Pressing, insistent, is the modern word that we would use. Pressing, urging. When it says continuing instant in prayer, it doesn't mean beginning to pray on an instant. It means continuing insistent, urging, pressing, wrestling with God. Don't let those that persistence in prayer corrupt your prayers to a mechanical level. That is the danger. You've got to mix persistence with fervency. You've got to mix continuing with being instant, continuing with insistence with God that He hear you and answer your request. That woman didn't become mechanical, did she? Still reasoning. You won't reason if your prayers are mechanical. You'll be getting down there in your prayer and you'll be doing some reasoning with God. 
you may vow, you may make a vow to God. Nothing wrong with vows, just be careful, we'll get to vows. But you may reason with God like Abraham did and try to appeal to him based on certain promises he made, based on certain prom promises like last Sunday that we dealt with where he's our father and he won't give us less than we ask for. Make sure that you don't become mechanical in your praying. What we've covered this evening is that God will give the desires of your heart if you delight in him. You'll have answers to your prayers if you pray fervently, earnestly like Jesus Christ prayed, like Hannah prayed in bitterness of soul. If you'll pray boldly like Abraham did and like the book of Hebrews teaches us to pray. And if you'll pray persistently with great perseverance like that widow woman did with the unjust judge and like the woman from the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. You say, God isn't nice to treat me that way and to make me pray. God is God. Amen. What do a lot of dog owners like to do with their dogs before they give them a dog biscuit? Beg. Have you ever heard that word? Beg. Beg. You know, there's not a very big distance between a dog and a human being compared to a human being and God. And he wants to see us begging. Because, see, a human being has something a dog doesn't. A proud, rebellious intellect. And he wants to see us crush that and come crawling, asking for a crumb. Lord, help me. Have mercy upon me. He wants to see that begging, and he'll stay there and not answer you a word until you've begged sufficiently for him. But I'm telling you, he does hear the prayers of the righteous. And if you beg and pray persistently, it will be an effectual prayer and it will avail much. Don't faint. Don't faint. You want to be strong? Forget the weightlifting. Forget the running. See how long you can persist in prayer. May God bless the preaching of his word.